Welcome to the October 2017 edition of RehabCast. This is the podcast of the Archives of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation, and I'm your host, Ford Vox. Hopefully, you're able to make it to the American Congress of Rehabilitation Medicine this year in Atlanta. That's October 23rd through the 28th. We've got that highway fixed, and all the power should be on. If you can't attend, follow along on social media. In the last episode, I mentioned the hashtag PIRR2017, and that's for progress and rehabilitation research. But we have decided to go more with the hashtag ACRM2017 instead. That one's probably going to be more memorable. So if you're attending and you send a tweet or post on Facebook or Instagram about what you're seeing, please append a hashtag ACRM2017 so everybody can find it. A lot's happened across the nation since our last podcast, mainly natural disasters from which many people are starting to need rehabilitation, some political disasters too that the nation brings on itself. We can always count on that. Now, Hurricane Harvey and Irma have hit the United States with a one-two punch and many people are reeling. I was very interested to read Dr. Monica Verduzco Gutierrez's article on doximity about the good, bad, and ugly of being on call during Hurricane Harvey in Houston. Dr. Verduzco Gutierrez works at TIER. Uh, TIER was lucky that the Texas Medical Center's uh, very expensive efforts to wall itself off from water over the years paid off in this disaster. The hospital stayed dry even as Bray's Bayou rose to become a moat surrounding the hospital. Monica wrote about the great attitude and persistence of the resident physicians and the therapists working around the clock. Uh, She also writes about how rough it got. She says, two of my fellow physiatrists lost their homes and cars. One coworker was evacuated on national television and taken to a shelter. The next day he moved to a cousin's house and expeditiously showed up to round on his rehabilitation patients. Amazing. Dr. Verduzco Gutierrez also describes the grief and stress of families who are already pushed to the limit with loved ones recovering from serious injuries, who now at the same time are going through a natural disaster, losing homes, uh, separated from their children. Sometimes it seems tragedy has no limit, but that's what rehabilitation workers don't shy away from. We roll up our sleeves and get on with trying to make life better no matter what. And now Irma. You couldn't have missed the headlines about eight skilled nursing facility residents dead within hours of each other in Hollywood, Florida, after their facility lost power to its AC. At the time of this recording, everyone was pointing fingers at each other as to who was at fault for not evacuating the facility or fixing the faulty transformer in time. Florida finds itself in a real pickle as climate change is bound to increase the frequency of these beastly storms, and uh, it has a lot of above-ground power lines. So many nursing and assisted living facilities are in one state that the electrical utilities simply can't prioritize them all. For CNN, I asked whether it's time to rethink South Florida as a reasonable place of residence for so many of our most vulnerable citizens. Please check that out on CNN.com. In other news, the FDA has granted breakthrough therapy status for MDMA and PTSD, which means clinical trials with MDMA are now far more feasible. We have the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, which goes by MAPS, uh, to thank for this, as it was largely their lobbying that made it happen. This spring, I talked about the new wave of psychedelic research for Atlanta NPR. Here's that clip. 
Welcome to the WABE Medical Minute. I'm Jim Burris. Joining me is Dr. Ford Vox, our medical analyst. Dr. Vox, you're here to tell us today that psychedelics are back. Does this explain the political news headlines we're seeing? Well, as best I can tell, everything we're hearing on NPR is real. Uh, And that includes this statement, uh, that psychiatry is in the thrall of psychedelics, again, and for good reason. Again? Well, there was a first wave of psychedelic research in the late 1950s and through the 1960s, and it abruptly stopped in 1970 when psychedelics like LSD and psilocybin were characterized as Schedule I substances by the Controlled Substances Act of 1970. Like heroin and cocaine, uh, the law classified those chemicals as wholly unredeemable, devoid of therapeutic potential, and having a high risk of abuse. Was the law mistaken? That's complicated. We have astounding results from two very high-quality studies recently that we're going to talk about. But it's true that the country saw a psychedelic craze in the 60s and early 70s when we didn't know much about these chemicals. I mean, there's even a national pizza chain that started here in Atlanta back in 1974 whose name, Mellow Mushroom, is an obvious reference to psilocybin, the mind-altering chemical found in a range of mushroom species, but not the ones that you generally put on pizza. When the drug culture makes its way to the theme of a family restaurant, even loosely, I guess you know you've reached a tipping point. Perhaps. And, And while clamping down on the recreational psychedelic use makes sense, I mean, after all, people taking these drugs like mushrooms and LSD can display all sorts of potentially dangerous behaviors when they're high. Uh, The unfortunate side effect of the legislation signed into the law in 1970 is that scientists suddenly had too many barriers to conducting human research with psychedelics. Now, years later, we're starting to see that these drugs hold enormous potential to relieve some basic human suffering, starting with the distress caused by cancer. These aren't chemotherapy mushrooms, but instead something that can help you endure it. Right. Uh, Of course, the knowledge that you have a late-stage cancer is among the more potentially devastating human experiences that any of us may endure. Uh, The mental health field has struggled for a long time to offer meaningful psychotherapies for people who have good reason to be depressed or anxious about their situation. Uh, The FDA-approved antidepressants and anti-anxiety drugs, uh, even in combination with different forms of individual and group talk therapy, uh, are lackluster. They don't have huge effects when they do work, and they take time to kick in. Uh, Taking a psychedelic in the situation is actually an old idea. Uh, There are research papers from the late 60s giving psilocybin to people dealing with deadly cancer diagnoses. Major universities did that type of research in those early trials, uh, but it wasn't designed well enough by our standards today. Uh, The patients in those trials often knew what they were getting, which can magnify the placebo effect, and it didn't compare them against anything. That's no longer the case. Now, I'm not saying I've tried it, but I can imagine someone would probably know whether they're taking a magic mushroom or not. So one popular strategy is comparing psilocybin against the vitamin niacin. If you take a sizable dose of niacin, you're going to feel a pulsating tingling and waves of heat across your body. These effects can last upwards of an hour. Uh, People in these studies haven't necessarily tried psilocybin before, so they don't know what to expect. And if you take niacin, you know you just had something active. Uh, So that helps tamp down on the placebo effect uh, when you're trying to judge whether the psilocybin is having an effect. So the high-quality studies are showing that psilocybin works? Indeed. So two prominent ones are from NYU and Johns Hopkins, both looking at people suffering from depression and anxiety related to serious cancer diagnoses. These studies found that a single dose of psilocybin improved people's sense of well-being and lowered their symptoms of anxiety and depression. Uh, Researchers in these studies coupled the psilocybin with therapy and gave the drug in a supervised environment. 
It isn't without side effects. Some people did experience brief paranoia or odd behaviors uh, where they could have injured themselves if they hadn't been supervised. The drug can raise blood pressure, but not to dangerous levels. Uh, but we've never seen anything like this in psychiatry before, a single dose of a drug with such lasting effects. Any idea why? Lots of theories, nothing definite. Uh, the mystical experience itself that's induced by psilocybin seems important. The way that it stimulates the brain's serotonin receptors is unique, not something that any standard treatment does. Brain imaging also shows that psychedelics disrupt brain networks that are particularly active in depression, and new patterns start to emerge. Thanks, Dr. Vox. It'll be interesting to see if mushroom therapy becomes widely available outside of research studies. We'll see you next week. So in the case of MDMA, the FDA is informing MAPS that they're willing to expedite the review and approval process based on the quality of the preliminary research that's been published so far. Uh, in that research, people with PTSD are demonstrating significant relief from treatment protocols involving the drug. Their phase two MDMA trials showed 61% resolution of PTSD at two months and a 68% resolution by 12 months. Of course, one big question is whether the medicalization of MDMA if phase three trials proved similarly successful and the FDA does approve the drug means that its street version, ecstasy, will see a spike in use under a new perception that, hey, it's safe. It's in fact a powerfully mind-altering substance with a host of dangerous side effects like blood pressure spikes, panic attacks, even seizure. Most definitely a prescription drug to be used with great care and only when absolutely necessary. Might psychedelics become a common way to help people process traumatic events, treat depression, treat pain disorders, and other diagnoses that are so common in rehabilitation? We're going to have to keep following this fascinating literature to find out. A big trial by Traumatic Brain Injury Standards is out in the September-October issue of the Journal of Head Trauma Rehabilitation, led by Dr. Flora Hammond of the Indiana University School of Medicine. It's the largest ever study of a treatment for chronic aggression and anger post-TBI. The investigators compared amantadine to a placebo. Personally, I find the study and its preceding studies fascinating because I don't tend to observe this effect in my own clinical practice. In most of the situations I've encountered, I tend to find that stopping or reducing amantadine helps the situation of bad behavior is the issue. But the theory goes that amantadine might help augment the top-down regulation of behavior, compensating for the damaged prefrontal areas. As the authors write, amantadine is a pleiotropic agent with indirect presynaptic and direct postsynaptic dopaminergic effects, N-methyl diaspartate channel antagonism, and serotonergic effects that may influence top-down regulation through enhanced cognitive appraisal and behavioral disinhibition. Now, their study had mixed results with both uh, the amantadine and the placebo groups improving on some measures. Observers didn't note less aggression on amantadine, but the patients themselves did, interestingly. The drug didn't seem to improve anger. Now in our featured interview for this edition of the Rehab Cast, we have Dr. Grace Kim. She's a PhD occupational therapist who trained at NYU, and she's now an assistant professor of occupational therapy at the NYU Steinhardt School of Culture, Education, and Human Development. Dr. Kim's paper is a randomized trial on the effects of attentional focus on motor training of the upper extremity using robotics with individuals after stroke. And you'll find it in the October issue of the archive. 
Grace, in this study, you're investigating the constrained action hypothesis in a new population. Would you tell us a little bit about the history of this hypothesis? Sure. So first of all, thanks for having me um, on the podcast. Uh, hopefully we'll have a lot of fun here for the next 30 minutes. The constrained action hypothesis really stems from the motor learning literature. Um, and, and a lot of it is based on the, the work by Gabby Wolf and her colleagues. Um, and it's talking about attentional focus, which is of what you're paying attention to while you're um, training a motor task, um, specifically a, a novel motor task that you might be learning, like a new skill or a new sport. So uh, there's two types of attentional focus that is typically studied in the literature. One is an external focus, which means uh, paying attention to the actual end goal or the, the outcome of a task. And the other uh, category is an internal focus, and that's really paying attention to the actual body movements and the motions of, of the arm or the leg, whatever the actual task is. So the internal focus seems to distract healthy people and athletes in many studies. If that's the case, uh, what good is internal focus as a strategy for motor training? Is there a population in which it's actually used successfully? I think that, so for the healthy population, as you said, most of the research overwhelmingly shows an advantage of an external focus when you're learning something novel. However, for, let's say for an expert, you know, someone that's been doing a task for a long time, if they are looking at fine-tuning something or uh, changing sort of the motor patterns of the way that they've been doing, uh, you know, a golf swing that's been established for a long time, mm. they may switch to an internal focus because they're really focusing on sort of changing their body mechanics. But sort of after, I think after that sort of revision period, that refinement period, I think then they go back to an external focus, um, which makes it, uh, once it becomes an automatic um, motor pattern, then they'll probably switch back to an external focus and sort of go back to that I see. Um, approach. Yeah, yeah, I guess uh, a lot of uh, PGA coaches would be out of a job if the internal focus didn't work <laughs> at all. Right. Okay. But with a lot of the research, when someone's just learning something totally new, you know, they're, they're a novel golfer, let's say. Um, if you break things down too much into an internal focus where you're saying, okay, focus on um, how you're swinging your, your arms and then keep your trunk straight, that might be just too much detail initially. And so just having someone focus on, okay, I just want you to hit the, the center of that golf club to the ball. Mm -hmm. if, so you're talking more about the outcome itself and what that would look like. That might be a much, it, the research says that that's a much easier way for someone to initially learn something. Okay. Now, uh, you discussed how this in, internal versus external has been studied just a very little bit uh, in the stroke population before. It looks like there's just a, maybe a couple of studies there. Can you tell us what yeah. existed before you did this? Yeah. So um, with the stroke population, the, the research is pretty limited. Um, there were a couple of studies um, done on the upper extremity and, and reaching tasks uh, by Fasoli and, and Durham. Um, and 
what they did was they looked at the way they, they stratified, let's say, two groups. One was an internal focus group and one was an external focus group. Um, and they gave them different instructions that were specific towards each attentional focus. And they had them practice you know, various reaching tasks within one, let's say, one session. Mm-hmm. So they were looking at sort of temporary performance um, and looking at uh, kinematics and the functional outcomes to see if one approach was better than the other. And with those studies, it looks like they, the external focus produced better results in mm-hmm. terms of, of the kinematics, let's say, and sort of the reaching performance. Um, and so based on... So those existing studies and the, 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 the literature on the healthy population, uh, which is pretty extensive, we, I was very curious to see how um, you know, this idea of attentional focus affected long-term retention um, because that really wasn't looked at. And uh, also the, the population that was more severely impaired in terms of their arm functioning was not looked at at all. Um, and so our approach was to look at patients that had moderate to severe impairment and then also to look at it over a four-week training program um, where they would come in for three sessions a week, so 12 sessions total, and then test them at discharge, but then also to have them come back four weeks after and see if any of those improvements, if they had them, were retained. And of course, by choosing to test this with a robot, the great advantage is that you can really zero in on this attentional issue, uh, the focus in particular, because everybody's getting the same therapy. You still have to be creative, though, about how you set it up to kind of force them to have internal, external focus. Exactly. So, um, you know, with the, I think with the decision to do a robotics protocol, as you said, there are advantages to it. Um, It's it's standardized. You can... um, standardize the dosage that they're getting and you can also standardize the type of, of reaching that they're, that each group is doing. Um, but we wanted to further isolate the, the attentional focus conditions um, to, to see if we could sort of better isolate sort of that, that construct. So with the external focus group, we, uh, well, let me step back a little bit. So we used an upper extremity proximal robotic device um, uh, the InMotion 2, which is which is called the MIT Manus in the early stroke literature, which people might be familiar with. But uh, the way that it works is you look at a video monitor, and uh, the patient's arm is in an arm piece that's attached to a motor, and the patient goes through an, sort of an eight-point clockwise design. Um, and that allows patients to practice a lot of reaching um, patterns, you know, shoulder flexion, shoulder abduction, adduction, um, extension, but it's all on a horizontal plane, so there's no three-dimensional anti-gravity movements. So the robot itself, um, when used without any kind of manipulation of the practice conditions, you have a video monitor with sort of a, it looks like a, a pie chart, and there's a yellow ball where the, the patient follows, they're uh, instructed to move that yellow ball from point to point, and each point is a destination of, of the reaching pattern. Um, and 
And with the, the robot, it also provides some of, of the external physical assistance or haptic feedback. Um, if a patient doesn't move the arm within a certain period of time. Mm -hmm. So it does provide some of that physical assistance and it provides some of those visual cues with, with the game. So in terms of, we thought about how could we isolate external focus versus internal focus a little bit better. So with the external focus group, what we did is we wanted them to really zero in on sort of that end goal, which was not really related to movement of the arm. So we kept the video monitor on so that they would focus on moving the yellow ball in that clockwise, clock-like pattern. Um, and we also created a, a shelf that covered, covered the arm. Hmm. So that, because the arm is, you know, moving in that sort of same pattern along the clock-like pattern on the, on the tabletop. So we, we just created, you know, a shelf that would go over their arm to really bias the patient towards, towards the video screen. Mm -hmm. And then the, the instructions that we gave them were all um, focused on uh, moving the yellow ball um, and making sure that it's moving in a smooth straight line. And that internally focused group, tell me more about that. Yeah, so, and then with the internal focus group, what we did was we really wanted them to focus on moving their, their actual arm in that same, you know, clockwise uh, pattern. And so we actually turned off the video monitor mm. and, we, and we removed the, the shelf. And so that group, the only thing that they really could um, visually look at was the movement of their arm. And we instructed the patients to move the arm in the same clock-like pattern. And because of the haptic feedback that's provided, it, if the patient veered off uh, of, that, of that trajectory, it would move them back into, into the desired motor pattern. Um, and by the time, so initially when we started with the internal focus group, we had them practice a little bit so that they would understand conceptually what, what the movements were. And then they were also provided with internally focused instructions that just said, we want you to focus on the movement of your arm and moving your arm away from you towards you to the left, to the right. And you, you really did a lot of it, a lot of, a lot of repeated practice episodes there. And yeah. I, I like how it was well-designed for this kind of more moderate and severe population. You recognize it's going to take longer uh, for folks who are more motor-impaired, so you're really focused on how many times they do it versus how long the treatment sessions are, which a lot of studies have been designed to do that. Yeah, so, you know, we realized that, um, you know, because it was, it was moderate to severe, um, there is a range of ability between people that are sort of on that moderate end versus the sort of a very severe end. So, um, and especially because we were looking at the proximal, proximal shoulder, mm. um, a lot of patients uh, finished just in terms of time a lot faster than patients that were maybe more more severely impaired. And so we really, in terms of dosage, we standardize it to the number of repetitions. Mm. Um, in the in the for the patients instead of you know a time and, and you know with with you know robotic device because it's keeping count it's you know that's another advantage of being able to actually measure you know accurately the number of repetitions that people were completing per sure. session. 
Now, I think your outcome measure is going to be familiar to a lot of our listeners in terms of the Fugelmeyer assessment, the Wolf Motor Function Test, uh, joint independence. Uh, fairly unique. That is yeah. that unique to the InMotion device? Yeah. So it's it's a so the InMotion has sort of different kinematic assessments built into the system, um, and joint independence is one of of the outcomes. And what you do with that is um, you basically have the patient draw a circle um, in clockwise directions and then counterclockwise directions and. The idea is that you're trying to measure the coordination of the elbow and the shoulder joint. And if that if the coordination is fairly smooth with both joints, then the patient will draw a, a pretty nice circle. And the ratio uh, of the elbow to the shoulder uh, joint movement is it, it equals to one. So the, the in motion will calculate that for you. Um, now, the more impaired somebody is with with less coordination and less control of the, the shoulder or the elbow joint, the, the, the circle will flatten out hmm. so that patients that are really severe, they tend to sort of draw a flat line mm-hmm. left, left to right. And so their um, joint independence score tends to be closer to zero. And a secondary outcome measure is this uh, manipulation check questionnaire. Would you, tell, would you describe that yeah. to me? Yeah, so the, the manipulation check questionnaire was actually originally created by Susan Fasoli in her her attentional focus article. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what's nice about that is that you are able to check it, you know subjectively, but you are able to check somehow whether or not someone has been complying with your with your instructions. Um, you know, one of the limitations about att- attentional focus is you don't really have a, an objective way to tell, if they're paying attention to what you're telling them to pay attention to. So, you know, one way that we can at least try to address that is to to ask patients um, directly. Um, And so uh, the original version had, um, it was more of a Likert scale um, in terms of, you know, what patients were thinking about. Uh, We decided to change it into more of an open-ended response where patients, we just asked patients what you were thinking about, Mm -hmm. and patients just asked or responded with uh, open responses, so whatever they wanted to tell us, because we didn't want to, when we were doing some of the testing of that questionnaire, I found that sometimes patients would be sort of biased towards answering um, based on sort of the, the, the options that were available. And we made it open-ended, and when we did, we found some interesting responses because we found out that a lot of patients, you know, sometimes they weren't thinking about anything related to the the training. They were thinking about their schedule. They were thinking about lunch. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think that, you know, making it open-ended was a good decision because it gave us more of a, you know, sort of more of an honest... um, gave patients more of an opportunity to be honest about exactly what they were thinking about. Right. Now, uh, spoiler alert, uh, I suppose, uh, you know, (laughs) this this study in this, you know, moderate to severe population doesn't show uh, major differences. Um, And, uh, you know, let's let's talk about why. And first, I want to say that um, you know, I do think everybody in robotic therapy is probably going to be pleased a little bit that, hey, it, it worked. I mean, we did show improvement and sustained improvement uh, a month later. But, uh, you know, 
the attentional cues just not seem to be a significant factor there. Yeah. Uh, for folks in robotics, it's oftentimes going to be a question of like, you know, well, could we tweak this or that and make a difference? But, but tell me, um, you know, why do you think that is uh, a difference that perhaps uh, the regular athlete, the healthy brain, even the mild uh, stroke population, uh, it's not working out in this population? Yeah, so I think it's, um, you know, we, yeah, of course, our hypothesis was that external focus would be better. And we found that, no, you know, it, when we compared the two groups, there really were no you know, differences between the two groups, um, regardless of the attentional focus. And so we found that it was really, it seemed like it was really time. You know, so the amount of time that they were spending um, really was the, the active ingredient and sort of the salient factor. And, you know, when we thought about, you know, why this would be, you know, I was, I was thinking about, you know, with this group, they, this was more of the severe to moderately impaired. Um, so, that, you know, this group in terms of their motor system is going to have a lot more issues with automaticity uh, with motor control and you know the constraint action hypothesis is based on the fact that the external focus condition allows for the motor system to to operate with automaticity so you're not you're not interfering with what it typically can do and i think with the with our particular clinical population i think the fact that a lot of the patients had a disruption in their motor system through motor control, motor coordination. It, it maybe may not play out as well in terms of showing advantage of an external focus. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, an interesting, um, an interesting sort of tidbit that we found out is that when patients were telling us about what they were thinking about, they, would, they specifically would report that, you know, I really thought about extending my arm Mm. for that when I was reaching up because that's really hard for me to do and they were you know like people in the external focus group and we noticed we noticed that trend um and you know it was a significant about 30 percent of the patients in the external focus group mentioned something to that extent where they switched they switched to an internal focus when they particularly with movements that were difficult Mm. yeah for them to complete uh, so perhaps they didn't they didn't have the you know the actual cognitive uh, focus to be able to stay on task. I mean they knew that's what they should be doing. It's like they're they're drifting off and, and going to that, or, or perhaps it's just because it is so hard. Anybody be forced to do that, or do you think that there could be uh, you know? Uh, maybe more of a of a cognitive screener here, like I mean, folks like have some type of a attentional basis, kind of like a little neuropsych scan to say folks who are scoring in this area and attention, yeah. we'd include them in the study. Yeah, I think that I think that that's and that's I think one of the limitations of the study because we didn't have um, a specific um, sort of cognitive set of. A set of cognitive assessments that would where we could see that information, you know, where we could have sort of a nice stratification of cognitive abilities. What we did was we did exclude patients um, using the mini mental status exam, you know, which is a very gross, gross um, screen, and so it did eliminate patients that you know were that were that scored under twenty four. But I think it just, it wasn't, it would obviously not be sensitive enough to stratify people in terms of a specific 
uh, cognitive aspect. So I think that that's, that could be one thing that um, could be looked at in the future, certainly. Um, but also, just to add to that, I think um, one of the points that, that we mentioned is that, you know, it is, it's a 12-session it's a tw- protocol. Each session could last, you know, it, each session could last 30 minutes to 75 minutes, depending on the patient's ability. And I think it's it's I think it's unrealistic actually to think about well could someone actually be just thinking about their external focus cues or their internal focus cues for all that time, um, especially for um, you know patients where they might be a little bit frustrated because they can't move the arm that the, the way that they want to. Yeah, I don't know that so, I've gone checking my email. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that long. So. Yeah. I, I think some of it might be just the the nature of of training and sort of the amount of time that someone needs to be staying attentive during you know a training session where you want them to achieve a lot of repetitions or for it to be um, very rigorous. I think it's it is difficult to I think it's unrealistic to expect someone to be fully focused on sort of one you know one type of instruction. Uh, but I think that's the nature of a of retention, sort of that the the nature of sort of uh, training somebody in terms of a uh, testing them out for retention of motor skills and in terms of a long term training mm-hmm. protocol. So interesting. Now, now uh, you know I can imagine some kind of robotic engineers looking at this study and thinking, uh, you know, maybe they question the system itself. You know, in motion. Um, mm-hmm. Maybe maybe they might argue that. Uh, perhaps they can make it, you know, more engaging, better graphics, more bells and whistles and stuff. I mean, can you imagine that, uh, let's say that that uh, there's something visually stunning, you know, perhaps moving around objects in a 3D hologram or something that, yeah. you know, that, where you might expect that it's going to be so engaging that that external focus group is going to have more of a yield compared to those who don't have any of that fancy hologram stuff? Yeah, I, I think that that of course, that could be a possibility. Um, obviously, you know, with the in motion system, it's a with the the protocol, the research protocol um, program. It's a pretty, you know, I would say pretty consistent visual um, visual screen, and it's not very dynamic. Um, and I think that having and I think that there is something definitely to be said about uh, making it more dynamic in terms of different different types of tasks. Because with this group, you know, we had them do sort of this clock. We had them do practice different arm um, reaching patterns, but it was really sort of the same type of activity that they were doing week to week, um, session to session. So I think in terms of you know diversifying the actual task, the selection of tasks themselves, and, you know, thinking about, um, you know, engagement, you know, where we want patients to sort of come up with their own activities that they want to do and their own goals. I think incorporating that kind of approach might also be something to really think about um, as well. Mm -hmm. Um, And I don't know how happy the robotics camp will be to hear this, but, you know, the, the... the improvements themselves were statistically significant, but mm-hmm. none of it reached clinical significance. Sure. So, you know, perhaps it would, the fact that, you know, we're not really, the approach itself 
elicits improvement, but maybe not as much improvement um, as we want. You know, it might be, it might turn out differently if we were to also use an approach that incorporates some of these other um, factors to, to elicit better, to elicit better outcomes as well. Well, I, you know, I definitely think it, it, it's adding and exploring an important notion. I mean, I, and, and in the first place, I like to see more moderate and severe stroke studies. I think it's obviously a very important and sometimes underserved population with a lot of the literature. But um, in, in terms of this, this study is going to lead to a lot of further uh, questions along the, along the lines of, of how much attentional focus is a factor. And, of course, it, it does demonstrate while... Um, the the changes were were marginal. It is interesting to to see. You know, you do get these measurable but non clinically significant changes. Uh, it's intriguing to think about. You know, you know what next needs to be done in order to make that difference. And does attend the the type of uh, focus need to be a factor in that? Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I think. And really, I'm very happy that this this uh, project got published. I know that sometimes negative results can be biased in terms of not publication, but mm-hmm. I think it, it is really important information to put out there because, again, as you mentioned, we were looking at a more impaired population, and we were also trying to look at long-term uh, learning and whether or not attentional focus really does play a factor in terms of long-term learning for a clinical population. And um, with our results, I think there's an indication that perhaps, you know, maybe not. Maybe attentional focus in and of itself is not as effective or not as significant in terms of long-term learning. Um, But for temporary performance, you know, I think there is some weight to an, an external focus being more advantageous um, because it is more dynamic. Um, it is, I think, not as cognitively fatiguing as thinking about how I'm moving my arm and am I pushing it out this way? Am I moving it to the left? So I think that, I think those are questions that we need to um, explore a bit more. You know, does this type of long-term learning approach, would it be the same for patients with mild or, you know, on the milder end of impairment? Um, I think that's a, it's a interesting question to look at as well. Um, and sort of this idea of, well, an, an interesting tidbit was that, you know, with the external focus group, they actually completed more repetitions in general than the internal focus group, which uh, it didn't affect the overall results, but it does uh, tell us that the external focus condition is most likely easier for patients to attend to mm-hmm. and sort of maintain over a longer period of time. So, um, you know, having said that, I think it's a little bit nuanced saying like the external focus may help people pay more attention mm-hmm. uh, during a session, but perhaps the actual active ingredient is that they do have to keep, they have to practice that rep. They have to practice that skill set or that movement or that functional task, uh, you know, over a certain amount of times for the actual change to happen. So hopefully it'll give us a bit more nuanced, um, picture about, you know, different factors that might play more of a, a, a role, um, 
when we are designing interventions for people that have you know more severe impairment uh, and also less less impairment. Right. Yeah. That's that's kind of the 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 next stage. That kind of more device design and everything you'd incorporate as well. I mean, there's there's you know really well done work like this that, that demonstrates the non utility of something. So how are you gonna more more in terms of you're you're testing um, a particular you know kind of therapeutic add on to this in motion device here, but that can also uh, inform kind of the next generation of the software and the device and how to better. Uh, design it for the for the more severe population and, and kind of more of that work needs to be done. It seems like too much. It's about, you know, kind of what the engineer can create and then let's see if we can find the evidence for it on the basis of right. that. Right, right, right. Yeah, it's sort of like it's engineering in reverse, you know, it's like it makes no sense. So, right. yeah, and I, I, you know, and I do know that there's a lot more collaborative efforts and conversations going on with with engineering and therapy and you know the physicians and and the patients you know really like mm-hmm. you know the ultimate customer so hopefully that will create much more of a of a design and a product at the end that makes more sense and is much more successful Dr. Kim thank you so much for joining us in the rehab cast to talk about this excellent work and and yeah I think uh, you've proven that the so-called negative results studies can be vital contributions to the literature as well yeah excellent thank you so much for having me Folks, that's it for this October edition of the Rehab Cast. Again, please join us in Atlanta later in October if you can. Grace Kim will be there in the flesh along with so many of today's best rehabilitation scientists. The annual conference is the ideal setting to spark new collaborations. There's a two-part course on integrative and comprehensive multiple sclerosis management involving the whole team from the Shepherd Center MS Institute, part of which includes a reception and tour at Shepherd. Everybody at Shepherd Center is extraordinarily proud of what we're doing here. And if you haven't been by yet, I hope you'll take the opportunity to do so while you're visiting the capital of the South. This podcast is brought to you by ACRM, the American Congress of Rehabilitation Medicine. Don't miss their annual conference coming to Atlanta, October 2017 the largest rehabilitation research event in the world, and it's interdisciplinary. Visit acrm.org.